And now remain standing and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. <clears throat> this will be our sermon text this morning. This is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Please give it your full attention. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord indoors forever. You may be seated. The psalm you are all probably very familiar with, Psalm 23, says this, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This psalm, Psalm 23, is read today at the majority of Christian funerals around the world, and for good reason. This psalm provides comfort for those who are passing through the dark valley of death. For God not only promises to be present with his people in the valley, but he promises to lead us through the valley onto the higher ground of eternal life, glorified life with Christ in heaven. Now, what is most comforting about this passage is that God will not send us where he himself will not go. In our Lord's baptism here in Luke chapter 3, Jesus submits to his messianic calling to walk through the valley of the shadow of death for his people. As we go through this passage, we will see that Jesus' baptism at the Jordan River symbolically depicted the judgment ordeal that he would undergo at his death on the cross. But we will also see that the valley of death for Christ was not a dead-end passage. It was a passageway that led to the higher ground of resurrection life in the Spirit. As Christians, we too are called to journey through the valley of the shadow of death. But we can take comfort knowing that God, our Savior himself, is with us that he has gone before us through this valley and has already emerged on the other side of it. 
But we also find consolation knowing that Christ promises to be ever present with us as we go through this valley now ourselves. Because he has poured out his spirit upon us to lead us to the higher ground of eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. As we look at this passage, we're going to do so under three different headings. First heading will be titled, The Waters of Baptism. The second heading, The Descent of the Dove. And number three, The Heavenly Voice. So the waters of baptism, the descent of the dove, and the heavenly voice. Now the question is often asked, from where did John's baptism come from? What is its background, in other words? Well, whatever we find in the New Testament, we ought to expect to find its background in the Old Testament. In fact, both Peter and Paul help us to see that baptism is, in fact, rooted in the Old Testament. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 20. He writes, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. And then he says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So according to Peter, then, the floodwaters in Genesis chapter 6 through 8 can be spoken of as the waters of baptism. New Testament baptism corresponds, that is, to the flood waters in Genesis 6 through 8. The flood was a form of baptism. Those outside the ark received a baptism unto judgment. But for those in the ark, Noah and his family, there was a passing through the judgment waters unto safety. So then the waters were a curse to those outside the ark, but they were a blessing to those in the ark as they passed through the judgment waters unto what Peter calls in 2 Peter 3, a new heavens and a new earth. God was destroying the old earth, heavens and earth by the flood waters. But when they receded, he brought about a new heavens and a new earth from it. And so... Noah and his family passed through the judgment waters out of the ark and stepped out into a new creation, so to speak, a new heavens and a new earth. Now, Paul gives us something analogous to the baptismal flood waters. He says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10.1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now note first that Paul says that they all passed through the sea. It's interesting, both texts speak about this passing through, whether it's the floodwaters in Genesis 6 through 8, they passed through those waters 
And here Paul notes that they all passed through the sea, the Red Sea, that the parted waters of the Red Sea. And he says they were baptized in the sea. And so as Israel fled from Egypt and approached the Red Sea, Exodus 15, 8 says, At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the floods stood in a heap. You see, at the hands of Moses, the Lord divided the waters of the Red Sea, opening up the passageway between the waters for Israel to pass through, for Israel to escape the pursuing Egyptians. But what happened to the Egyptians? Well, verse 10 of Exodus 15 says, You blew with your wind, and that word there, wind, is also the word for spirit in Hebrew, the word ruach, spirit or wind or breath. You blew with your wind, or you probably should be said, you blew with your spirit, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. You see, both Israel and Egypt received a baptism that day. Egypt's baptism was unto judgment as the Lord closed the waters in on them. But Israel's baptism consisted in a passing through the waters and making it safely through to the other side, passing on dry ground to safety on the other side. So for one, it was a baptism unto cursing. For the other, it was a baptism unto blessing. And so what does all of this mean with respect to John's baptism of repentance, which Jesus submits to in Luke chapter 3? Well, take notice in Luke chapter 3, verse 3. So a number of verses before our passage, Luke chapter 3, verse 3, where John's baptism takes place. Where is he baptizing? Baptizing. He is baptizing at the Jordan River. Now, in the book of Joshua, what happens at the Jordan River? Something very similar to what happened at the Red Sea. You remember, the Lord caused the waters of the Jordan to stand up in a heap, allowing Israel a passageway through the river that led to the promised land. It was basically a reenactment of the Red Sea crossing. In fact, one theologian writes, it appears that John, John the Baptist, was reenacting Israel's post-Exodus entry to the promised land. However, given Israel's sinfulness, John was calling the nation to repentance. Israel needed to prepare for the second exodus that would come by the ministry of Christ. You see, what he's implying here is that God was sending another deliverer. A greater deliverer than Moses. The greater Moses. Namely, Jesus Christ. To redeem his people from their bondage to sin and Satan. It's a greater redemption. It's not redemption from Egypt. It's a greater redemption. It's a greater exodus. In which this redeemer, this deliverer, would deliver them from the bondage that they, that 
that his people were under to sin and Satan. And so a new passageway would be opened by the coming Messiah, a passageway to eternal life in the promised land, not of Canaan here on this earth, but of, but of the promised land in heaven itself, the new heavens and the new earth in heaven. And the only way to enter it would be through repentance and faith in the deliverer, Jesus Christ. And this is why John preached a repentance unto the forgiveness of sins. But here's the question. Here's a question we need to ask. If Jesus is sinless, and he is, and if he did not need to repent, and he didn't, then why did he receive John's baptism? Well, Jesus' submission to water baptism was an act of identifying himself with those whom he had come to save. He was identifying himself with sinners in their need of salvation. For Isaiah 53, 12 says that he will be numbered with the transgressors. This is him already being numbered with the transgressors. He's identifying with them in their need for salvation. Although Christ had no sin from which to repent, as our deliverer and covenant representative, he was going to take our sin upon himself. And so he identified with those whom he had come to represent and to save. But it was more than just an identification. It was more than just him identifying with those whom he came to save. It was also a submission. He was submitting to undergo the baptismal waters of judgment on their behalf. Think about the judgment that everyone, save Noah and his family, received at the waters of the flood. Think about the judgment that the Egyptians received in the waters of the Red Sea. You see, beloved, because of sin, because all of us are depraved and come forth under the power of sin, we all deserve such a judgment. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all have sinned and we all deserve those types of judgments that come against us, even more, we deserve the lake of fire. But by identifying with his sinful people and taking on their sins, Christ would bear the curse that their sins deserved. And that is why Jesus spoke of his forthcoming death on the cross as a baptism. And he did so, you got to take note of this, write it down, read it later on, contemplate it. In Luke chapter 12, verses 49 and 50, Luke 12, 49 and 50, Jesus says this, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is 
accomplished. Now, the baptism that he is referring to there was his crucifixion. Jesus, when he says, I have a baptism to undergo, he's talking about the baptismal curse that he would undergo on the cross. And so Jesus' baptism, let's back up now to Luke 3, to our passage. Jesus' baptism at the Jordan River then is symbolic of, and it points forward to his baptismal death on the cross. And so when Jesus was baptized by John, he was submitting to enter into the passageway that leads to suffering unto death as our Redeemer. In other words, he was agreeing to enter into the valley of the shadow of death and to undergo the judgment curse on behalf of his people. That is why he goes to John to be baptized. It's pointing forward to his work as the Messiah to redeem a people through suffering unto death, receiving their judgment for, in their place. Beloved, Jesus did indeed undergo the baptismal judgment on the cross. The wrath of God, beloved, for our sins was poured out like judgment waters and he drank it all to its dregs for you and for me, for all who are in Christ. And he did so in order to open the way unto blessing for you and me. He received the curse so that you might receive the blessing. And so that we would not have to face such a judgment ourselves, a judgment we most certainly deserve. But until the Lord comes back to take us to be with him, that passageway is one in which we now share in the sufferings of Christ. Our baptisms, you see, are symbolizing many things. It symbolizes the cleansing of our sin and our union with Christ and so many things that we could discuss this morning. We don't have time to, to, to speak of them all this morning. But our baptisms are also calling us to enter by faith into the valley of the shadow of death. Not that we are called to die on the cross as Christ did, right? Christ bore the wrath of God on the cross so that we wouldn't have to. However, we are called to live a cross-stamped life. Now, many professing believers think that as Christians, we should live a life free from suffering. But notice in Psalm chapter 23 that the paths of righteousness do not avoid, those paths do not avoid the valley of the shadow of death. We will face dark times and dreary days. Jesus says in John 16, in this world you shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. 
We are called, beloved, to traverse through the valley. But like David, who wrote Psalm 23, we can fear no evil, for our Savior will be with us. We may experience evil. We may experience suffering. But we don't have to fear it because our God is with us. In fact, we learn as much from our second section, the descent of the dove. Look back with me to Luke 3, 21 and 22. Immediately after Jesus is baptized, while he was praying, Luke tells us that the heavens were opened and that the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus in bodily form, like a dove. Now, if you really pay attention, Luke makes it very clear that it was not a dove that descended upon Jesus. If that were the case, no one would have known that it was the Spirit. Luke tells us that the Holy Spirit came down like a dove or as a dove. And the point is that the Spirit descended upon Christ in a visible, avian, or bird-like fashion. And so why do the gospel writers all tell us that the Spirit descended with the likeness of a dove? Well, again, I think that the Old Testament background provides us with the answer. At the flood event in Genesis 8-1, we're told that God made a, a wind. Again, that word could be translated the spirit. God made the spirit to blow over the earth. And what happened? The waters subsided. They receded. And so we have a picture of the spirit over the waters. We have another very similar picture given to us in those few chapters. And perhaps more of a direct connection between the spirit and a bird a little bit later in that narrative. In Genesis 8, 8, we are told that a dove was sent out over the waters to see if it had subsided. It was the dove symbolizing the spirit that was sent out to discover the new creation that God had brought about after the flood waters had destroyed the earth. But this is not the only time that the spirit is described in a bird-like fashion throughout Scripture. In fact, in Deuteronomy 32.10, Moses recounts the Exodus event, and he describes the Lord as leading them through the wilderness wasteland like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them. Now, if you remember, it was in the form of a pillar of cloud and fire that the Lord actually led Israel through the wilderness. And so Deuteronomy 32.10 is helping us to see that this pillar of cloud and fire led them through the Red Sea and through the wilderness and unto the promised land in a bird-like fashion. Isaiah 63.11-12 actually says that the pillar of cloud and fire was the spirit in their midst, leading them. It was the pillar of cloud and fire, the glory cloud, which helps us make better sense of Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 10, that, 10, that all were baptized into Moses in the cloud, in the pillar of cloud and fire, in the spirit. They were baptized in the spirit. 
Now, in light of all this, it is interesting that after Jesus emerged from his baptism in Luke chapter 3, verse 22, that the Spirit descends in avian form to rest upon him. See, just as the Spirit hovered over the waters of creation, think about the, the second verse you read in the Bible. The Spirit was hovering over the waters of creation. Just as the Spirit hovered over those waters there, hovered like a bird over the waters. And just as the Spirit brought about a new creation out of the waters of the flood, Genesis 8. And just as the Spirit led Israel through the sea into the promised land of Canaan, the promised land is the symbol of the new creation. Well, so too... The descent of the Spirit upon Jesus at his baptism was a sign of a new work of creation that was beginning in the ministry of the Messiah. The work of bringing about a new creation was beginning. The Spirit descending upon Jesus at the beginning of his earthly ministry was symbolizing a new work of creation. Now, this does not mean, of course, that Jesus did not already possess the Spirit until his baptism. Several places in Luke already refer to uh, Jesus' possession of the Holy Spirit. But at his baptism, the Spirit descending upon Jesus was a public declaration and an empowerment of him for his messianic ministry. Luke will go on to tell us in Acts chapter 10, Verse 38, that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. See, all that Jesus accomplished in his earthly ministry, he accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit. Whether resisting temptation, preaching the kingdom of God, performing miracles, or even offering up his body as a perfect sacrifice on the cross. It was by the power of of the Holy Spirit, you see, that he was able to traverse through the judgment waters of curse on our behalf as he hung on the cross. But it was also by the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to remember that not just was he able by the power of the Holy Spirit to offer his life unto death, But it was also by the power of the Holy Spirit that he was raised from the dead to the higher ground of resurrection life in the Spirit. His baptism by John at the Jordan may have pointed forward to his death on the cross. But the Spirit's descent upon him after his baptism foreshadowed his resurrection. Where he would become the life-giving Spirit. And now the very same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, beloved, is bestowed upon us as we journey through this passage. You see, we may walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but we shall fear no evil for the Lord is with us. He is indeed with us. He has poured out his spirit upon us. The spirit of Christ is with his church. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he told his disciples that he would be with us to the end. And indeed, he is. 
For he sent to us the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. And now we too have been empowered to minister to others as we walk through the valley. Now in our last section, the voice of the Father can be heard from heaven. And the Father here speaks a word of affection as well as a word of approval. We'll look at both of those, a word of affection and a word of approval to the Son. He begins by calling Jesus his beloved Son. The Greek word there, agapetas, usually means simply beloved or beloved. But when it is used of a son or a daughter, it can also mean only son. You are my only son. And this phrase is is really a reference to God's words to Israel's king and ultimately to Israel's Messiah in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. It's alluding back to Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, which states, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And so this psalm focuses on the unique father-son relationship that Israel's king would have with God in heaven. But this relationship could only be truly realized in God the Father and God the Son. Jesus, you see, was the eternally begotten of the Father. God the Father and God the Son have shared a divine love between them as Father and Son. They have, they have enjoyed and shared that type of relationship from all of eternity. There is no greater love than what the Father has for the Son and the Son has for the Father. And as Jesus submits himself to the role of Messiah and presents himself for baptism, the Father wishes to announce his affection for his only begotten Son, the eternally begotten Son. And so there we have the word of affection. But he also announces a word of approval for the Son. It was with the son that the father was well-pleased. He was well-pleased. He approves of the son. He is well-pleased with him. The verb tense that the father uses to describe his approval toward the son is known in grammar for you grammar nerds. It's, it's a timeless errorist. And so the approval of the father has, that, that he has toward the son is beyond time. It's timeless. The father has been pleased with the son for all of eternity even outside of time. But the occasion for which he announces this approval is Jesus' submission to undergo his messianic calling to suffer the baptismal waters of judgment on behalf of his people. This phrase of approval is an allusion to Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. Isaiah writes, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. You see it? 
There's the word of approval in whom my soul delights. And it's upon him that the spirit rests. The spirit is put upon him. And Isaiah will go on to speak of this servant as the suffering messianic servant who will suffer on behalf of his people. It is this messianic role that Jesus is submitting to as he receives his baptism by John. And so the father is eternally pleased with the son, but he desires to express his pleasure with the son as the son yields to the work that the father has given him to accomplish. Namely, to suffer and die for his people. And what a remarkable Trinitarian passage we have here. God the Son is baptized. God the Spirit descends. And God the Father speaks from heaven. And in this revelation, we see that each person in the Trinity is involved in the work of our redemption. The son submits to the messianic task his father gave him. The spirit empowers him for his messianic task. And the father is well pleased with the son who has accepted the work that he gave him to do for our salvation. I mean, what what a God and what a gospel. One God in three persons. Those three persons, each who care deeply for our redemption and who love us from all eternity. As sinners, we deserve the baptismal judgment that leads to curse. But instead, God the Son suffers for all those who are united to him by faith. And in doing so, he opened up a passageway that leads to the blessing of a new creation. Because God was pleased with the son's messianic work, he raised Christ as the firstfruits of that new creation. Jesus, when he was raised from the dead, was a new creation. And we too will inherit the new creation. For Christ pours his spirit forth upon those with whom the Father has elected from all eternity. The spirit applies to them the redemption accomplished by Christ. And then the Father is well pleased with them as well. It's amazing that although we were the objects of God's wrath on account of our sin. By the work of redemption, the Father becomes well pleased. With us. Hebrews 11 informs us that by faith in the Son, we too can please the Father. Beloved, Christ is our great shepherd. He has gone before us into the valley of the shadow of death, and he has emerged victorious. And now he leads us by his spirit through this valley. The Christian life, this side of heaven, is not an easy journey. In fact, it is a life where we must pick up our crosses and follow Christ. 
In other words, it is a cross-stamped path of suffering in the valley as we share in the sufferings of Christ. Now, oftentimes, we don't want those valleys in our lives. But where do shepherds lead the sheep to find the still waters to lay beside and to drink from? Where are they? They're down in the valleys. It is down in the valleys where the life-giving waters settle. And where do you find the choicest grazing meadows but along the stream banks that the waters feed to the grass? You see, it is down in the valleys of this world that the sheep of Christ are nourished as we move to the higher grounds of the new heavens and the new earth where we will dwell in the presence of the Lord forever. To him be all praise and glory now and forevermore. Amen. Let us pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for Christ our Savior who came and who at the beginning of his ministry submitted to undergo what would be a baptism of judgment on the cross for the sake of us. And Lord, we pray that as we now go through the passage that he opened for us, that he has led us, he has pointed us the way to, that he has trailblazed the way through unto heaven, that we might keep our eyes upon him, the author and perfecter of our faith, that we might not steer neither from the right nor to, to the left, but would keep our eyes upon him following the way he opened. We pray that we might display our faith in the midst of all of our sufferings, even the final suffering of death itself. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.